Welcome to a little thing called the Kyle Klinsky Show. Um, jam-packed today. I got a lot of videos for you today, a lot of awesome clips. Um, I'm going to kick it off with one that brought me to tears, not going to lie. My eyes kind of uh, got a wee bit watery as I watched this video that you're about to watch. It's a fan-made, voter-made Bernie ad, and um, it is special. It is special. So I'm going to lead with that in just a second. Then I have an awesome throwback video for you. Watching a, a, an Ayn Rand devotee who ran the U.S. economy for years and years and years get obliterated by Senator Bernard Sanders. Then we have Donald Trump giving a speech at the Villages on health care. And uh, that speech was just full of lies. <laughs> absolutely jam-packed, full of lies. It was terrible, and uh, we're going to expose it for the mess that it is, and I will be making fun of it ruthlessly. We also have uh, some pro-Trump trolls that decided to try to pull a prank on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and um, I think that they think they nailed it, but in reality they didn't, and it's quite telling that they think this is, uh, you know, an area where they could play got you with the left, and you're going to see they are massively overreaching. And then we have, uh, you know, later on in the show we'll talk about, I, I got to I gotta make fun of the Republicans and the Democrats in their dealings with this Ukraine issue because, I mean, this, this really does kind of expose how none of them know what they're doing. And it's like blind leading the blind on the national level in this country. And then uh, I, I got 
forget it. There's just so much. I could tease like a thousand more stories, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, let's jump right into it, and we'll do it with a story that I'm sure many of you have seen by now, but if you haven't, get ready because this is something special. So I'm going to pull it up for you. Let's pull it up, pull it up, pull it up. Okay, here we go. So there's a guy by the name of Matt Orphelia, and um, he goes by the name Orf on Twitter. It's at zero RF. Um, and he likes Bernie Sanders, and he decided that he was going to take his considerable editing skills, and he was going to make the most awesome Bernie Sanders ad you've ever seen in your life. Now, this ad is great not just because it shows um, how Bernie's been fighting for regular people, I mean, his whole career. Um, this ad is also great because it really, really, really exposes corporate media bias against him. It uses juxtaposition beautifully um, so you can see what Bernie's actually doing and what he's actually fighting for versus what a lot of overpaid hacks are telling you about him. So without further ado, let's take a look and then we'll discuss. Bernie is back getting into the presidential race. Democrats like somebody new, and that is not going to be Bernie Sanders this time. It's really hard to imagine who the Bernie Sanders voter is at this point. Bernie Sanders, fall back. Please get away from us. Thank you for doing this. He has a, you know, a kind of gruff, curmudgeon side that is, of course, well-known. He doesn't actually smile that much. It's almost like Bernie couldn't tell the difference between kids and adults. All right, I think you're dumb. <laughs> I think you're dumb if you don't sit down and learn how to read and write. No, you were not born stupid. Come here. The only way I think you're dumb, I think when you think you're dumb. Because you're not. Um, he also, I think you're disheveled, you're unlikable, and you're pushy. And I don't think you should be leading anybody. Canada. Alex Smith. 
died after trying to ration a vial of insulin when he couldn't afford more. So his idea about, you know, free health care, he, he has seen the manifest atrocities that have occurred under socialism. A thousand dollars got me six months of insulin for my son. And still with a month in you. Gloria Steinem has suggested that younger women are supporting Bernie Sanders so they can meet boys. Hello, Bernie. We lost our condo, got foreclosed on because of their medical bills. Like, I don't understand young women who support him. I trust that Bernie Sanders is going to fight for health care and to lower prescription costs. Of all the presidential candidates, you're the one that I trust. I think he comes off as mean. I think he's disparaging. Bernie Sanders makes my skin crawl, and I can't even identify for you what exactly it is. Bernie Sanders has done nothing between 2016 and today. Thank you for everything you've done these last few years. You've helped to reset our political discourse and are demanding that we center our politics around justice and equity. I am hopeful because right now, there is a mass movement of people from all over this country rising up. I'm going to leave uh, his video in the video description box. If you don't mind, uh, just do me a favor, click through to that video, hit the like button, you know, drop, drop in on the original video, give it a like, um, and share it as much as possible. Now, I tweeted this out. Somebody tweeted it at me. I wish I, I could remember who it was because uh, I'd like to give them credit. But somebody tweeted this at me. I saw it, watched it, immediately shared it, was floored by how good the ad is. And then um, Sean King, who follows me, saw the ad as well, and then he took the ad. I saw him like uh, and maybe retweet, but it could have been just like my tweet on it. And then what he did is he uploaded it to Twitter itself. He, and he credited, um, you know, Orf at zero RF, who created the video, um, and he said, wow, what a great ad. And so he, he uploaded it to Twitter. I had just shared the YouTube link, okay? But he uploaded it to Twitter. You ready for this? How many views did it get? And this is as of yesterday. It could have gone up way more by now. But as of yesterday, it had 5 million views on Twitter alone. On Twitter alone. Now... I saw when I saw his video um, on YouTube, it had about 8,000 views. Okay, and then I kept going back and checking it. 
Last time I checked, which was early yesterday, it'll be higher than that now. Last time I checked early yesterday was about 135,000 views on YouTube, his original video. So listen, this is spreading like wildfire. Why is it spreading like wildfire? Because it's powerful and it's poignant and it's correct and it's true. And he's incredibly talented and he did a wonderful job making this ad. When I watch that, I think we can win this thing. We can definitely win this thing. There's a reason why this show has grown so much over the years, and it's not necessarily because I'm so good at my job. It's because they're so bad at their job. They mean in corporate media. I mean, they're really, 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 really bad. Really bad really bad. And you'll notice something, and this feeds into something I've been saying for a long time. I always said, I, you know, my main arguments that I like to make are policy-based arguments. And what you saw there is what? All those hosts who were going after Bernie? It was always uh, personality arguments, characteristic arguments. You know, I don't like him. He seems pushy and shouty. He's unlikable. He's disheveled. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares what you think of him personally? Who cares about that? I mean, you could find people. Who, I mean, freaking Ellen DeGeneres was just at a baseball game with George W. Bush. Now, I'm sure she'd say, oh, he's very likable. He's actually not disheveled at all and not pushy and shouty at all. Yeah, but he also happens to be a war criminal. He also happens to be one of the worst presidents in U.S. history. So I don't care about your character analysis. Why should I care what you random person on TV, who I know nothing about, why should I care what you have to say about this guy when really the thing that I'm voting for a politician based on is their proposed policies, their record, and their strategy moving forward in order to try to get said policies implemented? Why should I care about your, you know, I don't think you should lead anybody. He's disheveled. He's pushy. He's unlikable. By the way, some of the people who are commenting there, like Jennifer Rubin, she's a Republican. I mean, this is so, you never see this work in the, in the reverse direction. They never invite me on to, you know, concern troll the Republican Party and say, you know, I don't know, I think you guys are going too far in this direction. Why? Because it's viewed on its face as absurd because I'm not a Republican. So why would I be in a position like, oh, let me tell you the direction you guys should go in. Why would anybody listen to me? I mean, that's ridiculous. Why would you ask the opposition to criticize you and then you adopt the ideas of your opposition? No. I mean, that's like Jennifer Rubin. You want to criticize somebody, go criticize a Republican. Like, that's your party. We're supposed to take seriously these concern trolls of like, I don't know about this Bernie Sanders fella. Well, that's wonderful. How about you uh, hop on the bus and go to shut the fuck up, Sville, because I'm not dealing with it, because you're not even in our party. How about Bernie Sanders should listen much more, as he does, by the way, to the Democratic base and to independents and to all these groups that have historically been on the sidelines and been marginalized. You know, we can build a winning coalition, man. We need a, a, a multiracial multi-background coalition of working-class people, and we can win this thing. And I'm sorry, but there's one candidate that's willing to fight this hard and who's right on this many issues, and his name's Bernie Sanders. Now, don't get me wrong. If, you're not, if you simply don't believe in a social democratic or democratic socialist vision, okay, if you're in the minority of Americans, because most Americans actually do agree with this agenda, whether they know it or not, but if you're in that small group that doesn't you know, support this ideology, it's fine to not support it. That's fine. Go right ahead. But if people were voting based off their best interests, 
it's not even a question. Like, these things are empirically judged. You can look at polling data, which shows that his agenda that he's fighting for is massively popular. Most of the things he's pushing for are over 60% favorability rating. Never mind over 50, which would be strong enough. Most of the things are over 60% favorability rating. And, and this guy has been dealing with, you want to talk about fake news. Okay, Trump can whine all he wants, but you know what he does? He only trots that out when it's any story that's against him. Even if that story is true, he'll scream fake news because he's a self-serving moron. But with Bernie Sanders, this is the real fake news. It's against Bernie Sanders. The real fake news is glossing over his wildly popular agenda and his wildly successful record in order to act like he's not a serious person. When you see the hard work he's been doing, one of the moments that pissed me off the most there is when one of them was like, he's done nothing over the past few years. Are you kidding me? He's been building this grassroots behemoth and doing rallies all over the place and marching with working people, with unions, going to Canada to get cheaper insulin with people who need it. Did you know in the U.S. a vial of insulin could go for $360? And it's like, I forget the exact number, but it's like, a fraction of that in Canada, a fraction of that. And it only costs like a couple dollars to make. But, you know, we're, we're getting screwed over in this country because big pharma screwing us. Who do you really trust to take on the pharmaceutical companies? How about the person who's been fighting them his entire career? Who do you trust to take on the for-profit uh, health insurance companies? How about the person who's been fighting them and fighting for Medi Medicare for all, all, all these years? Who do you trust to take on Wall Street? Who do you trust to take on the military industrial complex? Who do you trust to take on all of the people who are screwing you? I mean, the answer is straightforward and very simple. So it's Bernie Sanders all day long. So again, what a wonderful ad. Matt, that was incredible. Um, already 5 million views on, on Twitter, over 100,000 on YouTube. This video as well is going to add, I don't know, maybe 100,000 more or so. Let's spread this thing as far as possible, man. I saw... There was one tweet that made my day about this. Somebody said, I was for another candidate, and then I watched this video. Now I'm voting for Bernie 2020. Because what they recognize is, oh, he has not, by any stretch of the imagination, gotten fair coverage. And when you look at what he's actually been doing, what he's actually been fighting for, what his record is, what his proposed policies are, nobody comes close. Nobody comes close. He's the only candidate who's for abolishing all student loan debt, abolishing all medical debt. There's so many policies that are unique to him that you and I look at and we go, you know, that one seems like common sense. I mean, why would we want to, you know, burden an entire generation and they're not going to be able to partake in the economy as much as they could otherwise? If you eliminate the student loan debt, if you eliminate the medical debt, we have over 500,000 medical bankruptcies. That's not a thing that exists in other, uh, you know, developed countries. And even other relatively solid Democratic candidates. They don't go that far. They don't go that far. And they're not going to fight for it like he's going to fight for it. He said he's going to take on his own party. He says if Joe Manchin blocks Medicare for all, he's going to be in, in West Virginia doing rallies against him, either making him vote for it or supporting a primary challenge against him so we can eventually get it. This guy is not going to sleep until he wins for us. And that's crystal clear. And this ad shows that. Okay. Next. 
All right, let's uh, let's go to the throwback video that I stumbled across yesterday, which is like a real a real classic. So this is a, a legendary throwback video for you. This is in 2003. Bernie Sanders uh, and Alan Greenspan went into it. Now, if you don't know about Alan Greenspan, let me sum them up for you real quick. You know, his entire ideology and his career was based on believing Ayn Rand, believing like a very strict, pure, libertarian economic interpretation. Um, and he ran the Federal Reserve from 1987 to 2006. And so he really set fiscal policy, monetary policy for this country. Uh, and, you know, we know the results. It kind of culminated perfectly in 2007 and 2008 with the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. So this dude thought all these years, all these years, oh, my God, I'm nailing it. Oh, my ideology is on point. In reality, he was creating a massive bubble which would burst and tank the global economy. So Bernie Sanders knew this, and Bernie Sanders knew that the policies he advocates for are terrible. And so in 2003, he, uh, he really, really grilled him in an amazing way. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair, and Mr. Greenspan, nice to see you again. Uh, Mr. Greenspan, I have long been concerned that you are way out of touch with the needs of the middle class and working families of our country, that you see your major function in your position as the need to represent the wealthy and large corporations. And I must tell you that your testimony today only confirms all of my suspicions, and I urge you, but I mean this seriously, because you're an honest person. I think you just don't know what's going on in the real world. And I would urge you, come with me to Vermont, meet real people. The country clubs and the cocktail parties are not real America. The millionaires and billionaires are the exception to the rule. You talk about an improving economy. While we have lost 3 million private sector jobs in the last two years, long-term unemployment has more than tripled. Unemployment is higher than it has been since 1994. We have a $4 trillion national debt. 1.4 million Americans have lost their health insurance. Millions of seniors can't afford prescription drugs. Middle-class families can't send their kids to college because they don't have the money to do that. Bankruptcy, bankruptcy cases have increased by a record-breaking 23%. Business investment is at its lowest level in more than 50 years. CEOs make more than 500 times of what their workers make. The middle class is shrinking. We have the greatest gap between the rich and the poor of any industrialized nation, and this is an economy that is improving. I hate to see what would happen if our economy was sinking. Now, today, you may not have known this. I suspect that you don't. But you have insulted tens of millions of American workers. You have defended over the years, among other things, the abolition of the minimum wage, one of your policies, and giving huge tax breaks to billionaires. But today, you reach a new low, I think, by suggesting that manufacturing in America doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where the product is produced. We've lost 2 million manufacturing jobs in the last two years alone, 10% of our workforce. Walmart has replaced General Motors as the major employer in America, paying people starvation wages rather than living wages, and all of that does not matter to you. doesn't matter. If it's produced in China, where workers are making 30 cents an hour, or produced in Vermont, where workers can make 20 bucks an hour, it doesn't matter. You have told the American people that you support a trade policy which is selling them out, only working for the CEOs who can take our plants to China, Mexico, and India. You insulted Mr. Castle. Mr. Castle, a few moments ago, a good Republican, told you.
you that we're seeing not only the decline of manufacturing jobs, but white-collar information technology jobs. Forrester Research says that over the next 15 years, 3.3 million U.S. service industry jobs and 136 billion in wages will move offshore to India, Russia, China, and the Philippines. Does any of this matter, matter to you? Do you give one whit of concern to the middle class and working families of this country? That's my question. Congressman, we have the highest standard of living in the world. No, we do not. You go to Scandinavia and you will find that people have a much higher standard of living in terms of education, health care, and decent paying jobs. Wrong. Before may I said. answer your question? You sure may. Thank you. For a major industrial country, we have created the most advanced technologies, the highest standard of living for a country of our size. Our economic growth is crucial to us. The incomes, the purchasing power of our employees, our workers, our people, are by far more important than what it is we produce. I submit to you that, uh, So now five years later, here's what happened. What I'm saying to you is, yes, I found a flaw. I don't know how significant or permanent it is, but I've been very distressed by that fact. But if I may, may I just finish an answer to you? question previously you found a flaw in the reality in the model that I perceive is the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works so to speak in other words you found that your your view of the world your ideology was not right it was not right you had it work precisely no. so you know in a weird way you got to give him credit at the end there there was a hearing five years later and this is after the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. We were in it at that time. And apparently, Alan Greenspan is a dude who, um, he really drank the Kool-Aid. And he really believed the Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman, pure libertarian worldview. And he thought, no, no, less government the better. Regulation is bad by definition. Um, leave it all up to the free market. It'll work itself out. And it turned out that was a giant mistake. People in Wall Street are not the smartest guys in the room. People on Wall Street are the greediest guys in the room. They had no problem over-leveraging. They had no problem playing hot potato with toxic assets for profit. And that's what happened. And so here you have Alan Greenspan admitting it like, oopsies, that he thought from 1987 to 2006, like, oh, ooh, I see economic growth. Therefore... This must be a victory. Again, that's not the best indicator of how your average American is doing. Wages were totally stagnant from 1987 to 2006. Maybe that's a little bit more important than he was given it credit for. And the way he got around that was saying, well, yeah, but the purchasing power of that money is better, so... Well, Bernie Sanders eviscerated him in that hearing in 2003. And then what do you know, five years later, when it all collapses, he's basically like, yeah, you know, um, I noticed a giant flaw in my ideology, and it turns out I was wrong about everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, Bernie Sanders was correct about it all. Man, that felt good, didn't it? Watching him just rip into him, and Alan Greenspan had to sit there like a little boy and take it with that, you know, bewildered deer in headlights, look in his eyes like, Okay, yep, yeah, mm-hmm, you're, uh, you're destroying me. It's going to end anytime soon. It feels, uh, feels kind of awkward. This feels very awkward. <laughs> oh, man.
but he's right. I mean, part and parcel of what these guys push for, and Bernie laid it out beautifully there, they didn't even care about protecting U.S. manufacturing. They thought, like, no, 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 the trade deals, the, the free trade deals are, are wonderful and they're great, and, you know, consumer, the price of consumer goods goes down, so it's obviously a net benefit, but really it's a race to the bottom because you're taking all these good-paying jobs that exist in the U.S., and you're allowing the businesses with no penalty, and in fact, if anything, they're incentivized to do it, to ship it overseas to India and China and elsewhere. So you're ripping the manufacturing base out of this country, and you're taking away the livelihood from so many middle-class Americans, people who had previously could say they made it, and now it's like, nope, sorry, we're going to rip the rug out from underneath you, and you're screwed. And all because it fit neatly into his ideology to allow the companies to do that, he came up with all these BS rationalizations as to why it's a good thing, when obviously it was a terrible thing. So, uh, yeah, Bernie Sanders absolutely destroyed him. He's a guy who's been correct about all these things for so, so long, and that's, you don't come across that in Washington very often. Okay, next. Trump did a little um, healthcare speech, and we're going to go after him. President Trump went to one of the most pro-Trump places in the country, because at the moment he's embattled and, you know, he feels like everybody's coming after him, so he wanted the warm embrace of massive Trump supporters who would never abandon him. He went to the villages in Florida. It's like this retirement community, gated community. It's all like upper middle class Republicans who end up moving there. Um, Overwhelmingly, it's probably like over 80%. And um, he gave a speech about health care, and he ever so limply attacked Medicare for all. Let's take a look and then I'll respond. Almost every major Democrat in Washington has backed a massive government health care takeover that would totally obliterate Medicare. These Democrat policy proposals may go by different names. They have all these wonderful names. But they may go by different names, whether it's single payer or the so-called public option, but they're all based on the totally same terrible idea. They want to raid Medicare to fund a thing called socialism. Any socialists in the room? I don't think so. Not too many. Anybody? No? No? Not too many in the villages. You're not big on socialism down here, right? These geniuses, these real estate geniuses said, no, we're not. Not too good. Every one of these plans involves rationing care, restricting access, denying coverage, Slashing quality and massively raising taxes. They want to raise your taxes. They also want to have open borders. I'm genuinely impressed at his ability to fit like 20 falsehoods into a minute-long clip. Because <laughs> that's what that was. So first and foremost, let's get this out of the way. None of the Democratic candidates are running on open borders. None of them. Not a single one. The furthest any of them go is to say, let's take it from a misdemeanor and make it a civil offense 
And the whole reason for that is it's still illegal, but the whole reason for that is we want to stop the breakup of families at the border, which is something that Donald Trump, even when pushed, goes, you know what, that does go a little too far. And usually what he does is he pivots and he blames Obama for it. Okay, so you agree it's bad. Well, the solution would be taking it from a misdemeanor, making it a civil offense, and then you turn around and strawman that and pretend like that's open borders, something nobody supports. And by the way, the Democrats have repeatedly proposed bills that would increase border funding. Weird way to show they support open borders, isn't it? To increase border funding in proposals to you that you reject because they're not draconian enough. So he's full of it. He's absolutely full of it. Um, And then when he says, well, you know, they want to ration care and raise taxes. You know who rations care? The for-profit health insurance companies. And they ration it in a way worse way than any single-payer system across the world does. That's for sure. You know the way it works in all the single-payer countries, which is every other developed country. Here's how it works. Here's how they ration care. Are you sick? Do you need help? You're going to get it. So they ration based off of need. Yes, if you have an elective procedure, you might have to wait a little bit for it. You want to know why? Because there's somebody that's got to hop the line because they're having a heart attack and they need help. <laughs> like, they ration based on need. It's the most reasonable way to ration. Everybody rations. You have to. You have to ration. So the question is, how are we going to ration? Well, here we do it based on the size of your wallet, not based on need. So somebody could need help more, but they're not well off enough, so they got to wait longer here. We ration care way worse than anybody else. That's why in this country we have anywhere from 30,000 to 45,000 Americans that die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. So they talk about wait lines over there. We have wait lines here, and it's riddled with the bodies of dead folks. 30 to 45,000 every single year. The GOP just rejecting the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare in many of their states That leads to 17,000 deaths per year. Now, they're going to come out here, Trump is going to come out here and argue like, oh, this would be bad if we ration care. It might lead to some negative consequences. Well, what about the 30 to 45,000 people that die every year now? You got nothing to say about them, do you? By the way, under Trump's administration, millions, millions of Americans have lost their health insurance because he's obliterated Obamacare through his executive orders, getting rid of the individual mandate gutting the, uh, the promotion of it so people know when it's the enrollment period. So millions of people lost their health insurance, and he's acting like he's some sort of success on this front? Are you kidding me? By any objective measure, he's been way worse when it comes to health care. Rationing care. And again, so let's dive into this issue, because this is the most, lead- most misleading one to most people. Oh, d- you know, they're going to raise taxes. You're paying right now what's called a private tax. Private taxes, premiums, co-pays, deductibles, everything that you end up paying to a for-profit health insurance company. Now, not only are you paying private taxes to pay for your health care, it is way, way, way more expensive than it would be if we scrapped all the private taxes and raised your public taxes so you get Medicare for all. And, oh, yeah, by the way, under Medicare for all, everything's covered. Under the private plans, you pay way more and you don't get as much out of it. Because not everything's covered. The plans exclude stuff. So would you rather pay more and get less covered or pay less and get more covered? I know the answer to that because I don't have a cinder block where my head is supposed to be. Do you know the answer to that? Uh, And then, of course, the best, 
the best part is, and it shows how uneducated he is on this topic, or he knows and he's just a massive propagandist. Could be either one. Um, he argues that, uh, you know, they call it like there's single payer, there's public option, but it's all the same terrible idea. Go talk to somebody who's actually educated about this stuff on the left and see if all that stuff is the same. No, there's giant differences between all the plans proposed by all the Democrats. Whether it's the public option, Medicare for all, extra, Medicare for America. Um, Those are all, unless you are getting rid of private insurance companies as the main source of insurance, health insurance, then your plan, to one extent or another, is protecting the profits of the health insurance companies and not changing the status quo enough. Okay, the only kind of private insurance that is really okay would be supplemental. So no duplicative insurance. So a private insurance company can't rip you off when Medicare for All is offering insurance on that in the first place. Okay, no duplicative insurance. That's in a very important provision. The only kind of private insurance that would really be okay is supplemental insurance. Um, But so many of the plans keep the for-profit health insurance companies in control of large swaths of the marketplace, and that's not okay. Um, and he, of course, calls it a government takeover of healthcare. And the irony of it all, he says, they want to raid Medicare to fund socialism. And he asked them, oh, you guys don't like socialism too much here in the villages now, do you? And they're all cheering like, yeah, we hate socialism. Virtually everybody in that audience is on Medicare. I mean... You got to hand it to the propagandists, man. They've done a great job of drilling these falsehoods into the heads of our elderly folks in this country. When you're all sitting there, you're all on Medicare, you're all on Social Security, and you're like, yeah, we hate socialism. The point of the event that they're going to is he's pretending like, I support Medicare. That's what I. So, in an event where you're talking about how much you support Medicare, you're talking about socialism is bad. What do you think that is? What do you think it is? And they're so ridiculous, they've gotten to the point where the only counterargument they try to make is the most absurd argument anybody could come up with. The argument of they're raiding Medicare to pay for socialism. So somehow being in favor of Medicare for all is an anti-Medicare position. No, I would argue... You have the anti-Medicare position because you don't want to expand it. (laughs) I mean, what would, if you think this program is so wonderful as you're pretending to, Medicare is great, we love Medicare. If you're pretending it's so wonderful, okay, then what's the next step? What should be done? Well, if something's great, shouldn't you expand it? That's what Medicare for all is, an expansion of the wonderful program that is Medicare so it applies to everybody in the country. But this is the only out they have, guys is this terrible mental gymnastics jujitsu nonsense. This idea of they want to raid Medicare to pay for socialism. These guys are anti-Medicare, and that's why they want, like, Medicare for everybody in the country. It's almost too stupid to merit a response. Almost. Except, here's the deal, and this is what's so frustrating. I didn't see anybody even really cover this speech seriously. CNN, MSNBC, the rest of them... They're all out to lunch. They're all up their own rear ends talking about, you know, the Ukraine thing and Joe Biden, and they're acting like Biden did nothing wrong, and, you know, Donald Trump fishing for Dar and his political opponents is the only story in the country right now. All this other stuff doesn't matter. Let me explain something to you. 
if you want to hammer him home, hammer him home. If you want to hammer him and get to the point where we can easily win the next election, this is what you focus on. Because the number one issue that Americans regularly report to pollsters, the number one, health care. So if that's the number one issue, and we have the popular position, we meaning the left, 70% of Americans support Medicare for all. Even when you try to word it in a weaselly way to put a negative connotation on it, it's still over 50% of Americans supporting Medicare for all. When you word it fairly, it's 70%. So we have the most popular solution on the issue that Americans care the most about, literally, and the argument from the right is a disgusting, over-the-top, incoherent mess. And instead of focusing on that, you guys want to run around in circles talking about Ukraine until the cows come home. As if working people in this country are like, I wonder what's happening in Kiev. No, they want to know how you're going to help them. How are you going to fix their lives? 500,000 bankruptcies for medical bills. People getting rejected for silly reasons so the companies can make more profit. He's so ripe for attack here, and it's nowhere to be seen. Only like Bernie on the campaign trail is doing it. Other than that, you've got to come here to get real substantive discussion about how this makes no sense. Here's where you attack him. You would think there'd be a thousand articles in mainstream media. Donald Trump with an you know, incoherent argument on health care. Because it is that. It is that. Somehow, you know, the left is anti-Medicare by being for Medicare for all? That makes less than no sense. But no, they don't do it. They don't do it. And that's why there's still a question as to what's going to happen in this presidential race, even though Donald Trump is historically a pretty unpopular president. Because the, the resistance is so toothless that it's, it's still up in the air as to whether or not we can defeat him. If you do the right strategy, it's not up in the air. Okay. Here we go. Now we're going to go to the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez news. This story is a few days old now, but um, I think it's, I wanted to talk about it. It's just too juicy. So there's some pro-Trump trolls at a group called LaRouche Pack. And uh, they went to an Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez event. And they tried to play Got Ya by taking the issue of climate change and uh, proposing the solution of eating babies. Take a look at the video. Note her reaction, and then we'll discuss. We have so much knowledge because of the climate crisis. We only have a few months left. I love that you support the Green Deal, but it's not getting, you know, getting rid of fossil fuel is not going to solve the problem fast enough. A Swedish professor is saying that we can eat dead people, but that's not fast enough. So I think the next uh, campaign slogan has to be this. we got to start eating babies. We don't have enough time. There's too much fuel, too. All of you, you're, you're, you know, you're pollutants. Too much fuel, too. 
saw that video, my thoughts were, oh, this person either has severe mental health issues or they're a troll. And it turns out I was exactly correct. Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went on Twitter immediately after the fact and said, you know, hey, let's be nice. There was a woman there who was undergoing like a mental health crisis. You know, we got to don't like use this as political fodder because somebody appears to be in crisis. Um, and it turns out, of course, many people on the right, you know, use this to try to play gotcha. But I don't like what's the gotcha? Because it turns out it was a troll, which we learned later on because a group came out and took credit for it. Um, and the argument from the right is, aha, AOC is in favor of eating babies. <laughs> what? <laughs> How'd you get that from the video? And like, well, she didn't say, no, let's not eat the babies. Because you can see the way she's acting there. She thinks it's a crazy person who got into the room. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't know if potentially she's violent. She doesn't know if she has a weapon on her. So she's trying to, like, calm her down and talk her down. I mean, that's, uh, come on, anybody with a brain can see that's what she was doing. The idea, like, aha, well, she didn't say no to the eating babies thing. Therefore, she's in favor of eating babies. Or you guys are grasping for straws and you're being ridiculous and you know you're being ridiculous. And by the way, none of the people corrected after the fact, like, oh, this is obviously a troll. Because the original articles that were running were like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez supporter says we should eat babies. Come on, man. So, listen, I thought the same thing. It was 50-50 in my mind. Either somebody who's mentally disturbed or they're a troll. And it turns out they're a troll. But, guys, this says so much about them because... Like, what did you think was going to happen here? And the answer is, amazingly, they really thought she'd be like, I agree, I am pro-eating babies. (laughs) I saw some other videos, too, or some other comments from people in, like, deep red states who were like, I don't, like, look at the faces of the people who are in there. It seems like they're just looking at a normal thing happening on a normal day. That's weird. They're so desensitized. Monsters. Like, this is the sentiment that I was getting on social media from a lot of people. And I saw some of the responses made me laugh because it's so true. It's like, okay, we're New Yorkers. We see shit all the time. 
okay? And also, I, I noticed the look on a lot of their faces immediately. Most of those people were like, their real thought was like, this is crazy. <laughs> you can see it in their eyes. They're like, this is crazy. But what are you going to do? You're just going to sit there and take it in. One person was laughing and took out her phone and was recording it, and a bunch of people were just looking like, like, oh, 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 that's the solution to the climate emergency? Eating babies. That's what we're going to do. We're going to eat babies. But they interpreted, the, like, the stares at this woman as, like, it's tacit support. It's got to be tacit support. That's, it's got to be that. Come on, man. Like, we're not having an honest discussion. We're not having an honest dialogue in this country. Listen, you want to disagree with people on the left? By all means. But don't be an idiot about it. And that's what you're doing. You're being idiots about it. And the final point I want to make about this story is, guys, this, this group that did this LaRouche pack, they're on the record as not believing in climate change. So they're trying to do this, like, got you, you're a moron, ha, ha, ha. And it's like, your entire group doesn't even believe in climate change. You think it's like a liberal hoax. So tell me again who the silly people are. Tell me who the ridiculous people are. It's stunning to me that anybody could watch that and think, like, got them. The only people thinking that are people who are already so far up their own butts that they would never give credit to people who, are, who don't agree with them ideologically. Those are the only people who are going to watch that and be like, see, see, all those lefties and their baby eating. That's what they want to do, and it's crystal clear. It's like take the most insane caricature of the left, throw it out there, and all the suckers just fall for me. Like, ah, 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 see, AOC supports it, and everybody in the room supports it, and that's clear. Or you're trying way, 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 way too hard, and you're not really an honest actor in this national dialogue. Okay. Now, uh, it's coming, all right? We got the Ukraine scandal. It's here. Much as I don't want to talk about it. So Republicans are really struggling to defend Trump when it comes to him asking foreign countries for dirt on his political opponents. Uh, you're you're going to see first here a guy by the name of uh, Jim Jordan, Representative Jim Jordan. He's the head of the Freedom Caucus. So he's a you know, big-name Republican in the House. And you also have uh, Senator Roy Blunt here, Republican Senator Roy Blunt. Um, <laughs> it's actually kind of funny. Look at how they struggle to defend Trump. China just started an investigation into the Biden. Because what happened in China is just about as bad as what happened with, uh, with Ukraine. Here's President Trump on Thursday. We're joined now by the top Republican on the House Oversight Committee, Congressman Jim Jordan. Thank you for coming in. Yes. Today, thresholds question. Do you think it's appropriate for President Trump to ask China and Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden? George, you, you really think he was serious about thinking that China's going to investigate uh, the Biden family? I think he's getting, as I think Senator Rubio said a couple days ago, I think he's getting the press all spun up about this. Are you comfortable 
With what the president has said here in this call for foreign governments, Ukraine and China, to investigate his political opponents. Well, I, I doubt that China comment was serious, to tell you the truth. You don't take the president. The president loves no. The president loves to go out on the on the White House driveway. I haven't talked to him about this. But I don't know what the president was thinking, but I do know he loves to bait the press. <laughs> you think he was serious about that? Yeah, I mean, we just saw the video, and he just comfortably said it. It wasn't, like, what, was that supposed to be a punchline? <laughs> like, who thinks in their right mind that if China was like, hey, just want to let you know, I have dirt on your political opponents, and I'd like you to see it. Who thinks Trump would be like, no, I reject on principle? Yeah. So Trump has another problem here, and the problem is Republicans are no longer willing to go as over the top as he goes in defending himself. Trump has a relentless blitzkrieg strategy when dealing with the media and dealing with the Democrats. And what he does is he knows the best defense is a good offense. And so that's why nonstop, over and over and over, he hits him and hits him and hits him and hits him and hits him. And you see, like, his Twitter feed is nothing but attacks on Democrats, and the whole, his whole line now is like, I have an absolute right to look at corruption. As president, I have an absolute right to investigate corruption, believe me. And so that's the line he's going with, and he's just hitting them over and over and over with that. But his Republican counterparts, for whatever reason... They're uncomfortable saying that, like, oh, yeah, he's the president, he has a right to investigate corruption, maybe because they fear a future Democratic administration investigating their corrupt asses. Could, that could be the reason why. So instead, what they're going to is, oh, when he said that he, was, he wanted China to investigate his political opponents, I, he was, he's probably joking. Just be honest, man. I, I, I would give them a hell of a lot more respect if they just came out and said, we just don't think this is that big of a deal. It's called oppo research. Oppo research happens in politics. Oh, you want to micromanage the source of the oppo research? Wow. Like, how silly. You know Democrats are doing oppo research as well. If they just gave that argument, I'd be totally fine with it. However, if they were to say that, then they better shut the hell up when in 2024, President Bernard Sanders gets some dirt on his, his opponent, Mike Pence, from AMLO in Mexico. When AMLO says, hey, I got some dirt on Mike Pence. He used to visit here in Mexico, and hmm, he was doing some interesting things, dog. <laughs> so, I mean, I would respect that more if they were just honest about it, but they're not. They're just like, he was joking. He wasn't. Of course he wasn't joking. Of course he would take the – he keeps telling people he would take the information. Of course he would. He's saying, I'm investigating corruption. I have an absolute right to do so. So the idea is like, well, yeah, I'm going to look at the material that's given to me on my political opponents. Why wouldn't I? So at least just, like, be honest about it, man. Just be honest about it and just say that, but they don't. You know, some, some are doing it. Like Ron Johnson, he was on Meet the Press, and um, he brought up that you, Hillary did the same thing with Ukraine in 2016, which she did. She did. She, you know, her team got dirt on Trump's administration, Trump's campaign at the time, from the Ukrainian government. And that's actually how we learned that Manafort was so deeply corrupt because of Hillary's team working with the Ukrainian government to get that dirt. Now, this is where a lot of people, you know, came at me on Twitter and were like, yeah, but she wasn't president. So it's like, fine. Either you agree 
that taking dirt on political opponents from foreign governments is wrong or you don't. Full stop. You don't get to draw these weird like little caveats where you carve out things for yourself for your own partisan hackery. If she wasn't president, okay, well then by that logic, your Russiagate was never anything anyway in the first place, right? You should have never cared about Russiagate. Why? Because when Donald Trump was working with Russia, then he wasn't president. He was just a candidate, so that doesn't, doesn't count. You know you don't believe that. You know you don't believe that. So it, I would respect that response more if they were just like, yeah, I mean, but everybody does oppo research. Democrats do it too. Okay, working with the foreign government, technically that's coloring outside the lines, but it's not really as big of a deal as you're making it out to be. Say that, but they don't. Most of them are like, this is joking, and they're struggling to defend him. And that, that is a genuine problem Trump has right now, because when you have all day long, nonstop, the media is just going after him and going after him and going after him and going after him. And the Democrats are going after him and going after him and going after him over this Ukraine thing, and now China too. And he's the only one defending himself, really, in strong terms. That does hurt. And that actually reminds me of uh, an argument I heard for impeachment the other day that I never thought of, which I think is actually a clever point. And the person who made this argument predicted, like, the last five presidential elections correctly. So there's a, you know, he's a legit professor, and this is not an argument to scoff at. But his point was, if the president gets impeached, if it gets through the House, even if it doesn't make it through the Senate, if it gets through the House, well you can check the box of scandal by Donald Trump's name. So Donald Trump was president. Donald Trump was a scandal-ridden president. There was a scandal there. He got impeached through the House. So check the box of scandal. He says that's all you need in your analysis to have it hurt him in the upcoming election, is that just generic scandal, because people, most people in the country don't follow this stuff that closely. So to them, all they're getting from all the relentless coverage of this is, I don't know, man, there appears to be a lot of smoke there, so I guess there's a fire. I mean, if that's the case, then that's very good news for Democrats. Now, you guys know I've been a little skeptical of that idea, although I haven't seen that. I hadn't seen that idea laid out as clearly as it was from this professor, Um, but, you know, that would be good. It would be good if. Just the fact that there's all this noise and all this smoke, people just assume there's fire and it hurts him in 2020. That would definitely be a positive thing. Um, but he's on, he's on the defense for sure now. Yeah, I mean, he's going on the offense, but the point is he's the only one going on the offense, and all of his Republican counterparts are really struggling to defend him. And I do have no doubt that behind closed doors, all like the Republican senators are like, God damn it, he's stupid, man. They don't like, they resent the fact that he's putting them in these positions because He's too, honestly, he's too dumb, and he fires from the hip too much to be gentlemanly enough to cover up his corruption and his behind-the-scenes dealings. Like, listen, I really do think it's the case that all the other presidents did it. They do. I mean, again, I just told you, Hillary, we know Hillary Clinton got dirt on uh, Trump's campaign from the Ukrainian government. We know it. So we, what, did all of them have, like, I have a principled objection there. Are you kidding me? Mitt Romney, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, all these people were like, oh, you got dirt, baby? Give me, give me, give me. If, if the Israelis came to them and said, I got dirt on your opponent, what, would they, no, I said, no, of course they're going to take it, of course, of course. But 
the thing is, and this is what I think people resent in Washington, D.C. about Trump, is he's too dumb to cover it up. And he just kind of throws it out there casually, even in press conferences. Yeah, they should look at my political opponents. <laughs> and they're all like, uh, you got to hide it. You got to be careful of that. What are you doing? So it, it is, it's kind of funny in that way, too. And he just he doesn't get it. Like he's too he's too much of a child to get it. Like I'm sure if somebody's told him like, you know, you can keep it on the low a little bit and he's just like, No, you're right, I think that's a good idea and then the next time he's in front of a camera, so anyway, China, do me a favor and look at my political opponents, Joseph Biden. They're crooked. They're crooked. <laughs> uh yeah, final thing I'll say is I still believe, despite all this, I still believe the best chance Democrats have is impeaching over emoluments and genocide in Yemen. Because I just think that's so much more poignant. There's so much more there there that would shock anybody's conscience that, you know, that would be a stronger thing than the Ukraine thing because he is going to keep making his case. And it's, he's not wrong when he says they're crooked. You could say the means by which he learned that is not right. Fair enough. But he's not wrong that they're corrupt. So I just think other avenues are better. Um, but, I mean, I guess we'll see how it unfolds, but it's been watching, following politics, following what's happening with this stuff is honestly like watching a TV show at this point. It's so nuts. All right, so now we're going to go after the Democrats. <clears throat> Donald Trump has his own set of problems at the moment. He's got the impeachment inquiry against him. He's got the fact that other Republicans are struggling really hard to defend him. Their arguments are terrible. Um, now, that hasn't stopped him, to be fair. Trump has just gone on the offense and just you know, said repeatedly that uh, Biden is crooked, Biden is corrupt. Hunter Biden, 50 grand from Ukrainian energy company. And he's on message, and he's not stopping, okay? But, I mean, it's also true that he's tripping all over himself because he's going in front of cameras and telling foreign governments to investigate <laughs> his political opponents. And everybody's like, you can't really do that. Don't do that. <laughs> so, so he's got his own problems, and he's struggling because it literally is like him versus the world now. It's him versus the media, him versus the Democrats. The other Republicans are terrible at defending him. He is trying, but it's hard. It's an uphill battle for him. Um, now, but having said all that, okay, Trump's not doing himself any favors. But you know who else isn't doing themselves any favors? The Democrats. So, again, you would think, if you follow this stuff, you would think, I mean, this should be like a political layup for the Democrats, shouldn't it? So you're going to see they're struggling with messaging um, to defend Biden. Biden is struggling to defend Biden. And here, just look at these short clips. This says everything. You're going to see Biden. You're going to see Kamala. And then you're going to see what happened after this and CNN reporting it. 
And uh, I think it speaks for itself. Take a look.
I mean, I don't, I, I can't believe that I, a YouTuber, have to come out here and tell this and give them the advice. What you do is you hammer him back on the same issue twice as hard, and there's so much there there. I mean, you want to talk about corruption. You want to talk about personally enriching from the office. Ivanka Trump is in the White House. <laughs> he, nepotism, oh, nepotism is bad. Ivanka Trump's in the White House. Jared Kushner, same thing. He's given his idiot, you know, his idiot family members all these jobs. Forget that. Did you know that Jared and Ivanka, while Trump was president, you know how much money they made in one year? One year, Jared and Ivanka. $82 million. $82 million. $82 million. Let me ask you a question. You think Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump would have made $82 million if Daddy wasn't president of the United States? You think there's no pay-to-play going on there? You think there's no corrupt dealings going on there? They've taken money from Israeli banks as they're trying to pretend like we're going to broker a peace deal with the Palestinians. Are you kidding me? What kind of a sick joke is it? He's got business interests all over the world. You're going to let one of the most corrupt people in America accuse you of corruption and all your response, I, I don't want to talk about that, and I'm not focused on him, and I just leave Joe Biden alone. That's going to be your response. How pathetic are you? You are the most pathetic people on the planet. Donald Trump has taken $300,000 from the Saudi government through his D.C. hotel, and then he turned around and gave them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal and then when Congress said, sorry, we're not going to let that go through because they're doing a genocide, he said, wrong, it is going to go through, and I, Donald Trump, am signing off on it. What more do you need? What more do you need? I don't understand. What more do you need? 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 Corruption facilitating a genocide. What more do you need? What more do you, I don't understand. What more do you need? The dude has taken money from all these different foreign governments, done all these different favors for them, the entire $82 million in one year for Jared and Ivanka, and you're going to say, Lee Hunter didn't do anything. I don't even uh, well, well, leave, leave Biden alone. Uh, Biden uh, is refusing to come on the media this week because he doesn't want to answer questions about this. Why not just hold up a sign that says, I'm guilty. Please, curb stomp me, Donald. I mean, it's... You have a party full of political novices. Listen, I think Joe Biden is corrupt, but I'm still giving the Democrats advice on how they fight back and how they wiggle out of this and how they win. And they're not going to take it. They're going to keep doing the same cowardly shit. Yeah, let Donald Trump hammer you day in and day out, day in and day out, give specific claims of corruption, give numbers, give all that stuff, and your only response is, don't, don't focus on that. me time to sit down and craft the worst possible response, I'm not sure I can make a response as bad as that. So anyway, here we are. The, the corrupt clown freaking reality star president is still politically running circles around experienced politicians. Okay.
All right, Dr. Oz went on uh, Fox News, and he made a little bit too much sense, and they did not take kindly to it. Fox News didn't quite know how to handle Dr. Oz when he veered off script and said something interesting about Bernie Sanders and Medicare for All. So you don't even need to, like, that's so much simpler than, oh, let's deal with these 
five or six different giant health insurance behemoths, each one of them has, each person that comes in the door either doesn't have a plan or has a different plan that has a different copay, premium, deductible, so on and so forth. We got to do all the paperwork and submit it and hope that it gets through and hope that there's no complications and yada, yada. Medicare for all is just single insurer, everything free at the point of service. That's it. So his main reason was, I hate the paperwork nonsense. I hate it. I hate it. I want Medicare for all for that reason. I mean, again, for the other reasons as well, because he's a solid lefty. But he said that's like, that really is one of the main reasons. He was dealing with that his whole career, his whole life. This is a terrible mountain of paperwork that's so unnecessary and arbitrary. Um, so that's awesome. See, what happens when you go on Fox News and you drop a truth bomb is um, they don't know what to do. I know because I've dropped a few truth bombs on Fox myself. Okay. Let me take a quick break. And then when we come back, there's a number that came out in a new Quinnipiac poll that should terrify everybody about Elizabeth Warren. And then we have uh, a hilarious clip where Kamala cannot read the room and she's talking to striking workers and shoving her foot directly in her mouth. So don't miss all this stuff and there's much more. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
son of a bitch. All right, we're back. We are back, bitch. We are back, bitch. Okay. Let's, um, I want to do a little, like, breaking news thing real quick. Let me set it up. I'm just chugging some seltzer real quick, though, because your boy is parched. I am parched. I am parched. <laughs> I like how this show is 95% uh, me yelling and 5% me singing in between segments. Let me let me do like a breaking uh, little breaking news thing for everybody. I was I was going I was like fifty fifty on whether or not to cover this because I actually think it's a super complex issue. Um, <clears throat> but ultimately, I think it's so important that we have to cover it. All right, here we go. So I have a little bit of breaking news for everybody. Um, President Trump announced that U.S. troops are going to be taken out of a certain region of Syria. Now, the reason why our troops are in this particular region in Syria is, at least on paper, um, and it probably is the real case, but I'm not sure, uh, to protect the Kurds. So the Kurds really assisted us in the fight against ISIS. You know, they're actually, you know, one could argue like the primary anti-ISIS fighting force in Syria. Um, Now, you guys know better than anybody how much of a mess our foreign policy is. And it's an open secret that we have funded Saudi Arabia and through Saudi weapons deals, they then give some of those weapons and some of that support to jihadist factions inside of Syria. So it's possible they have backing from Saudi Arabia. Also, there was a program previously where we just directly funded rebel groups in Syria, and many of them were jihadist groups. So it's a weird policy where we're on like both sides of a conflict at the same time. In fact, the LA Times a few years back reported exactly that, that Pentagon-armed forces in Syria were fighting CIA armed forces in Syria. So just to show you how much of a total mess our foreign policy is. But um, Trump is saying now we're going to withdraw our troops from a particular region of Syria where they're basically protecting the Kurds. And what everybody fully expects to happen is um, Turkey's Erdogan is going to invade now and basically brutally dominate the region, and their fears that there's going to be, like, ethnic cleansing of the Kurds. You know, the Turkish government doesn't really have the best human rights record, <laughs> to say the least. And um, they, they viciously repress the Kurds uh, within their border. But the idea now is, even though the Kurds helped us defeat ISIS, and they have 
um, thousands of ISIS fighters that they've captured and are still guarding. Like they, they basically have like imprisoned thousands of ISIS fighters. The U.S. is going to pull out, and then Turkey is going to invade, and then who knows what's going to happen from there? Because obviously the Turkish military is much more powerful um, than these Kurdish fighters. And so there's a fear now that there will either be a conflict or be some sort of ethnic cleansing or, or whatever. And it's, it's, a, it's basically a guarantee that Turkey is now going to invade Syria, which opens up a whole other can of worms. And, you know, there's, there are expansionist goals of a lot of these characters in the region. I think that um, Saudi Arabia has expansionist goals. I think that, honestly, in Erdogan's heart of hearts, he wants to reestablish the Ottoman Empire. I think um, I think that uh, it's unfortunately a common thing that you do have a lot of these like authoritarian leaders who want to you know take a take this country back to its glory days, and so they're very uh, expansionist and they're willing to violate human rights like it's nobody's business. So then, of course, the conversation becomes, well, what should the U.S. do? And I actually think this is a difficult question, and here's why. Um, You guys know I'm a firm non-interventionist. I think the only time that we should use military force is basically to defend our country. Um, Now, if there's cases of, like, a genocide or something, I'm perfectly fine with the United Nations getting involved. So we do it not in a unilateral way. We do it with the world together. Uh, so I'm in favor of, you know, trying to protect human rights the proper way through the UN with all these other nations. So we're not a nation above nations, we're a nation among nations. But other than that, the only time I'd use the U.S. military is to defend the country. So what should happen in this Syria situation? Well, Noam Chomsky, of all people, and he's, everybody knows he's one of the strongest anti-imperialists that there is. He actually has said previously, way before this happened, that this is the one place in the world he would keep U.S. troops. That's interesting. Why? And he basically argues because they're kind of, in this particular region, it is like a peacekeeping mission. And it is like they're just preventing the wholesale slaughter of the Kurds. Um, So that's his take on it. And I think that's fascinating. And I think that should be weighed into our decision-making process because you have the most anti-interventionist, non-imperialist, anti-imperialist guy saying, hold on now, like this is the one region where... It, it looks like we're not doing anything exploitative. It's legit like we're just that last line of defense where Turkey knows, that, well, we can't, do, we can't do anything against the Kurds because the Americans are there. So that's what he says. Um, now, the counterargument to all this is, though, and I, I also find this compelling, to be fair. I find Chomsky's point compelling, but I find the opposite compelling, too. And the opposite point is, well, we're there illegally in the first place. So, like, the idea that we were there at all to begin with is something that's incredibly controversial and scandalous because this is what's happened over the years is that we just willy-nilly send our troops wherever we want for whatever reason. Um, And there was no approval through Congress. It's U.S. ground troops in Syria. Um, And it's, you know, did you, are U.S. taxpayers okay with footing this bill? Is this something that you would put on your list of priorities of things we should pay for, or is this way down the list? Now, I get it, you know, you can make a, the same case for, um, you know, the Uyghur Muslims who are literally being dragged into concentration camps at the moment. You can make the same case for the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, who are some of the most repressed uh, people on earth. 
you know, you can make an argument of a necessary peacekeeping mission in Kashmir where, you know, Modi's cracking down and has cut off all communications. Like, there's a lot of places where you could argue something so egregious, such a violation of human rights is going on, that there's an argument for us to be there. But if you are going to be there, you have to do it the right way up front. You have to, like, okay, you want to be in Syria? You want to protect the Kurds? Have a vote on it in Congress. Have a vote on it. You know, uh, poll the American people. See what percentage of the American people, given all the facts and being fully educated, what percentage of them would want to go over there and do it? You know, how long are we going to stay there? That's the other point that I find compelling is like, okay, so if you say we should stay there, how long? How long? Should we be there indefinitely? Should we be there indefinitely? I don't know. I'm asking. So this is, I honestly believe this is a complicated issue. And the only thing that really gave me pause initially is Noam Chomsky. Because Noam Chomsky was like, this is like the one place where it's okay to keep a residual force just to prevent, like, Turkey from slaughtering the Kurds. That does give me pause. It does. Um, But, again, I also find the other argument really compelling. The argument of, like, well, it's illegal that we're there in the first place. It's scandalous that we're there in the first place. And how much longer do you want to stay there? And I guarantee you this, guys, this is going to be an issue where the Democrats go all in. Why? Because it's an issue where they align with the CIA and state power. It's an issue where they align with the Pentagon. It's an issue where there's no real political risk to going all in on this and saying, how dare you, Donald Trump? So it's an issue where they're lining up against Trump, and their argument is, no, let's keep the troops deployed. So I guarantee you the media is going to go all in on this, and the Democrats are going to go all in on this. And it does kind of blow, blow my mind and annoy me to no end that, like, they don't go all in on something like, hey, why are you still in Afghanistan? Why are you still in Iraq? It's never like, let's go all in on the anti-war angle, the anti-intervention angle. It's always the opposite. So now this happens to be one rare issue where it's, like, actually questionable what he's doing. But, like, go all in on, why are you still in Iraq? Why are you still in Afghanistan? Those are areas where we definitely need to get out of and we need to do it now. But they're not going to do that, and that's upsetting. So I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm very curious to see what everybody thinks about this issue, particularly because it appears like the action that we're taking will lead to more conflict and bloodshed. And, but at the same time, again, it's like, what do you want us to do? Stay there forever? What do you want us to do? <laughs> so um, Donald Trump tweeted uh, just before this segment here recently, about an hour ago, he tweeted, I have stated strongly before, and just to reiterate, if Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, <laughs> consider to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey. I've done before. They must, with, they must, with Europe and others, watch over the captured ISIS fighters and families. The U.S. has done far more than anyone could have ever expected, including the capture of 100% of the ISIS caliphate. It is time now for others in the region, uh, some of great wealth, to protect their own territory. The USA is great. I mean, it's like it's embarrassing that like I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, <laughs> consider to be off limits. I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey if they do anything I don't like. Pre- presumably, he's saying, "Don't don't touch the Kurds." But I don't know if a mean tweet from Trump is going to do it because he. Because I don't think anybody takes him seriously. I don't think world leaders take him seriously. I don't. I think they don't, and for understandable reasons. But anyway, that's your breakdown of what's happening in Syria. That's your breakdown of what's happening in Turkey and with the Kurds. And 
you know, it, it really is a difficult issue. I, you know, you can tell I'm kind of torn on it, but I think there's real reason to be torn on it. But I tried to give you, you know, the total picture, and now you can make your own mind up. breaking news for you. Now we're going to go to Elizabeth Warren. All right, here we go. There's a number that came out in a new Quinnipiac poll that should honestly terrify everybody about Elizabeth Warren. Um, So first, let's go ahead and give you the good news about her. She has a 74% favorable rating and a 10% unfavorable rating among potential Democratic primary voters. So that's up from a 61% favorability rating that she had in May. So that is a you know, pretty significant surge, and that reflects itself in the overall numbers of, of uh, how she's doing in the primary. It does. You know, she's been on a trending line upwards. However, here's her Achilles heel. With non-Democrats and, you know, non-Dem-leaning independents, so basically everybody else in the country, you know what her approval rating is? 11%. And her uh, favorable rating, and her, excuse me, she has an 11% favorable rating and a 70% unfavorable rating. Now, it's a fair point to say, yeah, but Kyle, these are the exact people who you would expect the Democrats not to get in an election. I mean, yes and no, but here's why this is important. Guys, that's 50% of the country. That's 50% of the country. So when you talk about non-Democrats and non-Dem-leaning independents, that's 50% of the country. And she's 11% with those people. Now, to give you some context and some perspective on that, they didn't give Bernie's number in the article on this, which is unfortunate, because I think it would be significantly higher. But you ready for this? Even Joe Biden's number it, with that group, is double Elizabeth Warren's. So in other words, let me, let me you know, simplify this for you. Elizabeth Warren only does good with Democrats. That's it. That, that's, the, that's the simplified version of it. That's it. She only does well with Democrats. Now, on the one hand, you could argue that's a good thing because, hey, we need to rile up our base. We need to rile up our people. Totally true, and I agree with that 100%. However, the way you build a winning coalition, in my opinion, is... First and foremost, you have to hold the base. Have to, have to, have to, have to, have to hold the base all day long. That's rule number one. Rule number two is you have to get independence. You have to, have to, have to, have to, have to get independence. Rule number three is you have to get people who have checked out of the system, people who otherwise wouldn't vote in an election. You have to get non-voters to become voters. And then finally, you have to get the people who are gettable who are center-right or independents who lean right. And for a lot of those people, you could argue they were the two times Obama voters who then flipped to Donald Trump. And she's the only, of those four, she's only doing well with the first group I laid out there for you. That's it. Everybody else, she's not doing well. So, you know, again, this is one of those issues where it's a little bit of a red flag. Now, there's still a lot of time left. 
And let's say she gets the nomination. Hopefully she will have chipped away on a lot of these areas that are her weaknesses. But my issue with it is I don't foresee that happening, particularly because of the kind of candidate that she is. She's getting, like, you know, college-educated, relatively well-off white people. (laughs) That's what she's getting. What you really need is a a multiracial, multi-background, working-class coalition. Um, And that includes Democrats, that includes non-Democrats, that includes non-voters who are going to get involved in the process. That includes people who lean right, who then go, wow, that person makes a lot more sense, and I think they're fighting for me. The only person really offering that is Bernie Sanders. He has, a, he has a winning coalition for a general election, and that gets to the main point. He would be more electable. That's what that means. He's more electable. The area in the country where Bernie Sanders does the best is the area in the country that we need the most to win the general election, namely the Rust Belt, the former factory towns, the dilapidated factory towns that are run down because all their jobs were outsourced. That's the area where Bernie Sanders does the best, and that's the area where Elizabeth Warren might actually struggle more. Now, to be fair to her, on paper, that's really not fair, because on paper, she's actually way more populist than Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the ultimate fake populist. I told you a thousand times, and I'll tell you a thousand more, there are certain areas where she, she shines, and, you know, broadly speaking, it's economic policy. So perhaps it's unfair that she's not already doing much better in the Rust Belt and with these kinds of voters that we're talking about. I think it is unfair, but that doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is that's the reality. So what do we do about it? Well, why don't we go with the person who we know is going to do really well in that area? I mean, just one man's opinion, but this is cause for concern for Elizabeth Warren. Now, I will say as well in this same segment, because I think this is really important, and I have a habit of doing this too, and I shouldn't. We've all kind of like written off Joe Biden. Oh, he's not going to last. Oh, this and that. I mean, yes because his performance is so poor. However, we're all political junkies. We all follow this stuff, you know, day in, day out. We know every word that all these people are speaking. Um, so we're biased in that respect. It's almost like we have an information overload bias. We take in so much of what's happening that it's like, well, we think if, if some people, if you even see 20% of the stuff we're seeing, you're going to go, oh, well, of course I agree. But here's the problem. Most people won't even see 20% of what we see. That's the problem. So there was a poll that came out yesterday. Biden's leading by like 30 points in South Carolina. 30. There's no hand-waving that away. There's no like, well, you know, hey, but the debate performances are bad. and blah, 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 blah. No, that's, that's real. That's real. So there's still a lot of work to be done. It ain't just Elizabeth Warren who's the competition, although she is. It's also Joe Biden. You know, it's it's... It was reported this week that his team is telling donors behind closed doors, by the way, donors from J.P. Morgan Chase, which shows you where their allegiance lies, um, they were telling them behind closed doors, listen, man, don't expect much in Iowa and New Hampshire. So apparently, and this says a lot, in the states where everybody's actually campaigning, where they are, everybody's going, oh, I like, I like not Joe. <laughs> I like these other people. I don't like Joe. So Joe's already telling people, mm-hmm, don't expect much in Iowa and New Hampshire. But what he is saying is wait till Super Tuesday because that's where we're going to do well. And to be fair to him, that is what the polls show. The polls show he's going to struggle in Iowa and New Hampshire, and then once you get to Super Tuesday, he could do well. Now, again, there's a lot of time left and a lot of beaten back that can happen from these other candidates. I think so many other candidates are way better than Joe Biden. 
But again, we're depending and we're relying on people to actually learn about this stuff and know that. And we're, you know, depending on the media to report that. I mean, you all saw after the last debate, it wasn't like the media was like, damn, Biden was terrible. No, they were trying to say he did a good job. They were trying to say he did a good job talking about record players and make sure the kids hear words and barely getting a sentence out. And they're like, no, this is awesome. What? So this is what we're up against. There's a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of default support for Joe Biden. There's people who aren't following this stuff closely. So, yeah, it's still going to be a lot of work to beat him. Um, But I think that, obviously, I think Joe Biden is probably the least electable candidate for a general election. Why? We're seeing it right now. Say what you want about, you know, Trump fishing for dirt on Biden from foreign governments. He certainly did that. But there's dirt there. And he's not going to, like, everybody has this weird thing where they act like, oh, Trump will just, like, lay down and will only hit him. And it's like, not only is that not the case, you're not even hitting him as hard as he's hitting you. Like, he's hitting you harder. So they don't get that the dude is going to relentlessly make his own case. And in a Biden versus Trump matchup, I don't want to see that because I don't think it'll end pretty. So I think he's the least electable. um, And that needs to be weighed into our decision-making because... It would be so bad, man. Oh, just a drawn-out fight between the two of them and Biden just being incoherent and Trump just being like, corrupt, corrupt, Joe, so corrupt. Oh, boy. So anyway, I think everybody has weaknesses, except America's dad, Bernard Sanders. All right, now we got Kamala Harris proving that she doesn't know how to read a room. This is kind of funny. I take that back. It's very funny, not kind of funny. This next clip is hilarious. Kamala Harris told striking auto workers that uh, she's a capitalist and she's pushing for tax cuts. <laughs> This is like peak, high-level, don't-know-how-to-read-a-room stuff. So look, look I, let me just tell y'all so that we can be really clear, because I don't want to leave you with any misimpressions. I am not a socialist. Uh, uh, uh. I believe in the virtues of capitalism, if capitalism is actually working. But one of the points that one must understand is capitalism presupposes that people, if they're on equal footing, can compete and the best will rise. Well, that's a fallacy in America today. Because most people are not starting out on the same base. And over the past many decades, the rules have been written in a way that have not been in support of working people and working families in America. So we've got to deal with that. Part of what I'm proposing is that we change the tax code so that for families that are making less than $100,000 a year, so, you know, I actually, to her point on like, oh, I'll give a tax credit to the middle class and the poor, like, I'm not even necessarily against that. You know, I, I've often said on, on the show that like, I've never met 
a tax cut for working people that I didn't support because they need more money. They need more money, and that's just a way to get them more money. So I'm not against it, but what I'm, like, floored by is her inability as a politician to understand that you're giving the wrong speech to the wrong room. Like, okay, you're talking to striking auto workers, and you're telling them that you're a capitalist and tax cuts are awesome. No, that's the room where you go in and you say, hey, you know, uh, we should have we should have stronger union protections. We should have card check. We should have a right to a union. We should have a living wage. We should have Medicare for all so that, you know, your employer can't just jack your health insurance when you go and protest, which, by the way, that did happen. That happened. Now they flipped, but that did happen, and people were panicking. So that's what you do. You go there and you say, hey, you know, we should have Medicare for all. You wouldn't have to deal with that. We should have higher wages. We should have better worker protections. You know, like, this is what you say. But she goes there, I'm a capitalist, and I like tax cuts. (laughs) Oh, man, she's just... You know what this is, guys? This is um, this is the remnants of the Reagan era. Like people don't know how much of an impact the Reagan era had on politics in America, because you know the idea is, oh, the era of big government is over. The scariest words in the English language are, "I'm from the government and I'm here to help." And it was this relentless glorification of the free market and relentless demonization of the government. And there's a lot of people from that generation, raised in that generation who internalize that to the point where they think that's a duh. Like, well, what do you mean? No, it's a duh that the less the government does, the better. So therefore, tax cuts are by definition good. Capitalism is awesome because a rising tide lifts all boats. They have all these like little cliched responses in their own heads that they think, well, this is the duh position. And, but here's the thing. It is not the duh position to working people in this country. It's not the duh position to younger voters in this country. If anything, we're the generation that, you know, saw firsthand the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession. Go look at the numbers on the median income for, for uh, millennials. It's like 20 grand in each state, respectively, anywhere from like 20 to 30. We're doing way worse than our, you know, the, the older generation, our parents and their, and their parents did at this point in their lives. So this, like, when you're talking about, oh, I'll give you a tax cut, and the people you're talking to don't make any money, that's not really, like, the first thing they want to hear. They want to hear about debt cancellation, you know. Uh, they want to hear about free college. They want to hear about Medicare for all. They want to hear about ending the wars. You know, they want to hear about totally restructuring our economy and kind of getting back to that FDR vision. Like, there were errors in American politics, and there was an FDR era where, like, everybody thought his ideas were common sense, and when he did his economic bill of rights, everybody was like, this is obvious. Why shouldn't we do this? Talking about right to a job and things of that nature. And then the Reagan era came along in the 80s, and it was the opposite. And I feel like Kamala is still reeling from that era and is still, like, that's imprinted on her brain somewhere. So she always colors within those lines. And what she does is she tries to go as left as I possibly can go within the logic of the Reagan era. And that is um, not good. (laughs) Not good to say the least. We need to imagine a totally different style of politics and a totally new direction. And she is a leftover, she's a politician left over from a previous generation, and there's still so much of, because what happened after Reagan? Then the next Democrat who won was Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton ran as a new Democrat. And the idea of the new Democrat was, 
oh, I'm not like the previous two far left Democrats. I'm a centrist. I agree with Democrats and Republicans, and I'm above the fray. I triangulate. I'm a centrist. That was, that was Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton won. And so then the dominant philosophy in the Democratic Party, both ideologically, but then also because of the corrupting influence of big money, became, oh, centrism is always the way to go. So fast forward to today, that's Kamala. This serious candidate, as she often calls herself, you know, I'm a first-tier candidate. The first-tier candidates, this is how they think. Oh, this is Washington, D.C., conventional bubbleism. You can't go far left and win. That's not a thing. You know, forget that FDR kept getting reelected and the country loved him. And, you know, he was the most dominant political force, arguably, in American history. Forget all that. You know, it was Bill Clinton era. It was the 90s. We're still, this is the model. The model is centrism. The mo- model is take big money. The model is, you know, color within these lines and don't go too far outside of it. And that's what she believes, and that's how she's acting. Not good. Not good. I'm fucking hungry, man. God damn it. Mid-show, I'm hungry. It's not really mid-show. Three quarters of the way through. Fuck. Fuck. Goddamn Loch Ness Monster. All right, uh, Fox News is going to protect uh, the billionaires here in a very embarrassing way. They don't even want to be protected, and they're going to protect them. <laughs> so Fox Business Network flipped out at Mark Zuckerberg because he surprisingly voiced the opinion that nobody deserves a billion dollars. Um, now, he's worth like 60 or some odd billion dollars, something like that, 65-ish. I love how, I love how at a certain point you're literally, you literally can say like, yeah, give or take a few billion, give or take a few billion. Like, no, the difference between 65, let's say he's worth like 67. The difference there is like, oh, he has $2 billion more. $2 billion is so much money. (laughs) So, but that's, but that's the point that we're at, man. This is the point we're at. So, um, to his credit, he voiced the opinion, hey, nobody really deserves a billion dollars. Like, that's a little bit silly. Who are we kidding? We have people who are, like, starving, and this is insane. Uh, so what follows here is Fox Business chastising him, but then also kind of slipping up and showing everybody their true colors just a little bit too much. Let's bring in Steve Forbes, Forbes Media Chairman. What do you make of this? You know, another one of those people is going to pull up the ladder behind him. Well, it's amazing. Uh, A lot of these people, they make it, they create great companies, and then they feel guilty about it. He doesn't have to feel guilty. That money will be put to work. You know, rich people may be idle, but their money is not. It's invested, starting new businesses. He's talked about philanthropy. He could take a model of the Gates Foundation, which has literally saved hundreds of thousands of lives in Africa, Asia, and elsewhere. So there are plenty of good things to do. And uh, you can't do these good things without resources, what we call capital. That's what makes the system work and enable people to get a higher standard of living. Yeah, I mean, it might have to do with PR without question, because if you look at Mark Zuckerberg channeling his inner anti-billionaire, it might have to do with Elizabeth Warren, who called him out at a campaign event in Nevada. Listen to this one. What we need is a president with the courage to enforce the antitrust laws, break them up. And yes, Mark Zuckerberg, I'm looking at you. So when he says, you know, oh, I, no 
this much money. Is he helping himself with her, playing into her hands? You never appease demagogues or critics by being defensive. Make the case of what you've done and what you're going to be doing in the future. Because I'd rather have Mark Zuckerberg, for all of his flaws, investing my money than Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, or Joe Biden, or these other people. Right, Elizabeth Warren has never done, produced, made anything in her life. She's only been, you know, she's been a professor. She's, you know, made a fortune on a college campus, and then she's been in office. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has met a payroll. He has, he has dealt with ups and downs. You know, I mean, it, it just is astonishing to me that, that he would be kowtowing. Um, at the same time, for her, you know, Zuckerberg and Sandberg for that, for that um, account are, are really unpopular right now. So making them her whipping children kind of makes sense, yeah? Well, yeah, they, they, they always have to find villains. The Democrats don't have much to go with except higher taxes and government running everything, which we should have learned from the Soviet Union, does not have a good end. Oh, boy. Okay, so you don't need to find villains when they're already there. You don't have to look. They smack you in the face. So, for example, for-profit health insurance companies getting rich off of people's sickness and misery and also, you know, under this system, up to 45,000 people die every year because they don't have access to basic health care because of the profit motive, because of the disincentive structure in the system. So we're not searching for villains. We're just pointing it out and going, oh, that's a villain. You have to search for the military-industrial complex to be a victim. Uh, they're a victim, uh, or a victim, excuse me. Ha <laughs> ha, hilarious, not victims at all. Villains, um, they are villains, and they are creating victims. Okay, so as a result of the military-industrial complex, we have eight wars going on right now. So don't tell me, like, oh, you got to search for villains. No, we don't. They're there. Wall Street is there. You know, rigging the economy in their favor, buying Washington... Uh, to bias everything, where they make all the money, they take none of the risk, they crash the economy like we saw in 2007, 2008 with the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. I mean, we're not looking for anything. They're there. And then we're pointing them out and going, oh, look at that, that's kind of messed up, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, and he says all they have is to run on that and, like, higher taxes. Well, why are you – I mean, that's purposely misleading because, you know, like I've told you guys a million times before – Take Medicare for all. Under our current uh, system, you're paying a private tax. Just a tax is a premium, a copay, and a deductible, and you're paying way more and you're getting less. So we want to eliminate that, raise public taxes, give you Medicare for all, which gives you more coverage for less money, so you save money. So Medicare for all is a tax cut. Effectively, it's a tax cut. So when we talk, oh, they want to raise taxes, well, no, what we really want to do is have Medicare for all, have free college, eliminate student loan debt, eliminate medical debt, and you do it in a way where there's a redistribution from the rich to the poor and the middle class. Now, does that mean that we're going to say, hey, if you're rich, you're no longer allowed to be rich? No, you're still going to be allowed to be rich, and you are going to still be rich. But are you going to have $100 billion, $150 billion like Jeff Bezos? No, we're going to tax your ass. And you know what? You ain't going to do shit about it. You're not going to do anything. What are you going to do? You're going to move somewhere else? No, you're not. You're not going to go anywhere. You want to know why everybody wants access to the U.S. market? Because uh, it's a very lucrative market. So the idea, oh, all the rich will flee if you crack down on them too much. Uh, no, they won't. No, they won't. No, they won't. By the way, we already have a progressive tax system in the country in the sense that the more money you make, the higher tax rate you pay. So do we have no rich people now? 
because they pay more than poor people as a percentage? No, we still have them, right? So we're talking about raising those rates a little bit. Nothing crazy. It's all going to work out, buddy. Relax. Calm down. Breathe. It's okay. Um, I like how they said, they said, oh, he got rich and he's pulling up the ladder behind him. He's pulling up the ladder behind him because he, he thinks billionaires are egregious. People, if you have, if you have $2 million, $3 million, you're wealthy. But if you have $70 million, $80 million, $100 million, you're phenomenally wealthy and you won't even know what to do with all your money. If you have a billion dollars, $100 million, 10 times, and you're going to whine? Why can't I have more than this? Oh, my God, whiny little pricks. Um... He says, make the case, don't be defensive. But that's the thing is, like, maybe he actually believes that billionaire, having billionaires is messed up. Like, he's, he's, he's framing this in a way of, like, teams. Like, you're on team rich. Why don't you just, like, hate everybody else? Well, that says a lot that this is how you're thinking about it. Because maybe he just genuinely believes, sincerely believes, you know what? I don't know about all this, bro. I don't know about all this. I think maybe having billionaires is a little crazy. So why can't it just be a genuine thought? Why can't it just be, you know, something he's thought about? Something that, by the way, is true. Like, we live in a system where about 80% of workers live paycheck to paycheck. Half of workers in this country make $30,000 a year or less. We have 500,000 homeless people. In that system, where we also have so many billionaires, there's a little bit of a problem there. There's this giant imbalance that's not okay. Now, you could say, oh, well, my wealth doesn't lead to anybody else being poor, but that would be factually false. That's an old, you know, libertarian or right-wing talking point. My wealth doesn't make anybody else poor. Yes, it does. There's a finite amount of wealth in the world. Okay, you following along? Finite amount of wealth. So that has to be divvied up in some way. And when you have, what is it, the sixth richest people on the planet have more wealth than the bottom 50% combined? Again, when you look at America, you have um, one family has more than 45% of the country combined. Uh, the Walton family has more than 45% of the country combined. It's a, it's a choice. It's an economic and political choice to have the wealth distribution that out of whack and to have um, the power distribution that out of whack because really that capital is power. So they can buy the government. It's a threat to a democratic system functioning when you have wealth that can – tip the balance of the system that much, it becomes undemocratic and unrepresentative. So, yes, there's a finite amount of money in the world, and there's a finite amount of money in the country. It has to be divvied up in some way. So, by definition, somebody's massive wealth does impact other people being totally poor. It does. And that's why redistributive policies, we ha already have a bunch of redistributive policies. They just don't go far enough. So everybody believes in redistribution. It's just to what extent do you believe in it? If you believe in having cops, if you believe in having a fire department, if you believe in having Medicare and Social Security, if you believe in these basic things, you believe with, in some level of redistribution. Even most hardcore libertarians, they say, well, obviously we need cops to protect individual rights. Obviously we need a court system you know, to, to determine uh, somebody's breaking the law. That is a form of redistribution. That's what that is. You know, oh, we're going to tax people, take some of the money, and then we're going to put it towards this. So... Everybody's in favor of redistribution. It's just where do you draw the line? How far do you go? What do you tax? What do you fund? These are all the basic 
fundamental foundational questions of how you run a country, how you, you operate a government. So, it, and the final point is, they say she's never made or produced anything. That's what, she, that's what they said. And this is what I mean when I said at the beginning, oh, their true colors are showing just a little too much. Because never made or produced anything is the mindset. Oh, she never met a payroll, so she's never made or produced anything. Elizabeth Warren, for all of her flaws, and she has many. Well, yes, she was a professor. Does that not count? And this is what they're showing to you. They're showing, although they don't count. These types of people, professors, I mean, that's like, you know, you're not producing anything. You're not really giving anything of value. So that doesn't really count. This is the mindset. She was the brainchild. Is that a word? <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard that before or used that before. But she came up with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, prodded Obama to do it. It was part of um, the Wall Street reform. And it ended up returning $12 billion to defrauded Americans. I know I was one of them. So that's what she did. She returned $12 billion to the American people because companies were ripping us off, lying to us, committing fraud. She created a government agency that worked for the people and against corrupt, greedy financial interests. That's what she did. That's more successful than, like, almost anybody, okay? That is a, a major, major, major accomplishment. But that doesn't count to them. Because, uh, I don't know, you are never met a payroll and you haven't produced anything. That's producing justice is what that is. And that's a hell of a lot more than we could say about any of you. Okay, next. So the U.S. government is coming for the last bastions of freedom and, and privacy, really. This is all about privacy. The New York Times says that Barr pushes Facebook for access to WhatsApp messages. The Justice Department has long sought access to encrypted messages, alarming privacy experts. Now, um, as I'm sure you, you've already guessed, the argument that they're making is, oh, come on, don't fight back against this because we're doing this to uh, fight terrorism. It's to fight terrorism. It's to fight organized crime. It's to fight child pornography. That's why we want to, like, get access to these WhatsApp messages. But the issue with this is, and I'm sure you already understand it and know it, there's no such thing as, like, oh, we'll just get a little bit of access in the right instances. Once you get access, you get access, and encryption is no longer a thing. If encryption can be cracked and they can see what people are saying uh, when it's supposed to be private, then it's no longer encryption, and it's no longer private, and it's gone. And there is no protection, 
and it's unsecure by definition. So what they're asking for is the complete and utter death of any remaining forms of privacy. And this is what we've seen. We've seen uh, court cases on this where the government has said, hey, we need Apple to help us crack, you know, this person's iPhone, and the person may have been, you know, involved in some sort of a, a terrorist incident or criminal act or whatever. And Apple's position has always been, we just don't do that, full stop. We don't do that. Because once we figure out a way to get into one person's iPhone, that means the technology to get into people's iPhones exists. That means there is no such thing anymore as privacy. There's no such thing anymore as having an iPhone or having something that's your own that you can keep away from the eyes of government officials. That no longer exists once you do that, once you open that door. But the government's position is, no, we, we're, we want to make you do it. We want to make you crack it, make the technology exist, and then uh, use it, and here's the main point, whenever they want to use it. If you think this is only about terrorism, only about child pornography, only about organized crime, i got a bridge to sell you. Because this is exactly what they said, remember with Edward Snowden and the leaks about the NSA, oh my God, they're collecting everybody's metadata, they could spy on everybody, anything you could do with your phone or your computer, they could do with your phone or your computer. You know, they got extra eyes on everybody. And what did they say? No, 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 this is only about terrorism. Oh, really? Uh, how many terrorist attacks did you stop with this? Well, see, what had happened was, yeah, exactly, you didn't stop any. There was no evidence of any. And then when they accused, oh, my God, Snowden is endangering our troops. Turns out, not true. And what were they actually using it for? Guys, this information is about power. This information is about control. If they have dirt on everybody, it's hard for anybody to step out of line and be anything but a lemming and a sheep. And so we learned that the NSA, one of the things a lot of these people were doing, Unsurprising to anybody who's familiar with this little thing called human nature is a lot of these people were spying on their former love interests, for example. It was so common that they literally had a phrase for it that they would commonly use in NSA circles called love int, short for love intelligence. This is what they did. You know, just countless stories broke with the Snowden leaks that just proved everything he was saying was correct. Everything he was saying what their capabilities were and are, what they're currently using it for. And now they want to take it a step further. Because everybody knows, I mean, in casual conversation, I'm sure you've heard, I've certainly heard it, like, oh, the real, you know, most secure way of talking is, uh, is WhatsApp. It's encrypted, no way, anybody get, getting in there, whatever, hacking it, whatever it may be. They want to take that away. So don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Don't believe the nonsense. Oh, this is about security. What's the famous quote from one of the founding fathers? Those who, you know, give away, um, give away privacy for security will get neither or deserve neither. I probably botched that so bad. <laughs> if you know the right one, put it put it in the comment section. But um, yeah, this is unacceptable, and you know. Do you trust a government filled with pieces of it like this and like Donald Trump? Do you trust that government? Like, oh, don't worry. I'll, I'll have access to your phone and your computer and all that stuff, but don't – to your WhatsApp messages. But don't worry. It's no big deal. I'm only using it to stop bad, bad things. Bad things. Bad things. Anyway, let me spy on everybody I remember from high school. 
Okay, here we go, baby. Last story of the day, and this is a doozy. This will come as no surprise to many of you in the audience, but I think that to your average American, this will be a little bit surprising to hear. Um, I would make the argument that the American empire at this point in time is officially on the way out, and it's in steep decline. It's in rapid decline. Um, now, there are obviously massive positive uh, impacts of that, but then there's also things that are just like, you just look at it and you go, it's, it's mind-boggling that the people who run the country are so insanely incompetent and inept and have no idea what they're doing that we've gotten to this place. So let me give you a little story here from Asia Times and then explain why this is so crucially important. Iraq will join China's signature Belt and Road Infrastructure Investment Project, the country's prime minister said Monday in Beijing. Uh, Adele Abdel Mahdi made the announcement in a meeting with Chinese President Xi, Xi uh, Jinping during a state visit. Quote, Iraq has gone through war and civil strife and is grateful to China for its valuable support, said Mahdi in comments uh, broadcast on Chinese state media outlets CCTV. Iraq is willing to work together in the one belt, one road framework, he added. Uh, she said that the two countries would cooperate on oil and infrastructure projects. Quote, China would like from a new starting point together with Iraq to push forward with the China-Iraq strategic partnership. So they already do $30 billion in trade, um, and that's obviously going to go up. And here's, I mean, here's the gist of this story, okay? So back in the day, back in the day before the U.S. was the world's uh, empire, the sole superpower, the way that empires, you know, would rise and fall, they, I mean, they would basically conquer everybody. So what they would do is they would invade a place and say, all right, you're now under our control and you owe us a tax and an empire would expand. And this is the history of, of empires. It was basically um, an invasion and then complete and utter authoritarian control, and you pacify the population. And so this is, you know, you pick the empire, and that's how this was done. You want to talk about the Roman Empire or whoever, um, Persian Empire, like this is what it was. This is what it was. Uh, and there's been countless empires like that, just rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. Um, now, what happened is that as, as time went by, that became, I don't know the right word for it, unpalatable. It became too egregious, too in-your-face, uh, too obvious that what you're doing is immoral and unethical and wrong. And so there was kind of an evolution in how empires became empires. And what you see in the U.S. is a totally new approach to being an empire where instead of just in, in most instances, instead of just invading, taking over a country, demanding that it's now part of us, and then, you know, jacking all the resources and, ta and taxing the people and whatnot, what we do is, in most instances, we get corrupt allies from the respective regions that we're taking over, and they're a proxy for us. So in other words, instead of like, you know, think old school British Empire style, oh, we just like, we just are taking over India and we're here <laughs> and we're
and we're running stuff now. Think like, you know, oh, the U.S. has like a, a puppet dictator from a given region, say South America, somewhere in South America. We have our own puppet dictator, and we technically control the country, and we are the world's sole superpower. This is like part of our sphere of influence, but it's run through a proxy of somebody who's from the area, from the region, from that country, and so it gives us enough plausible deniability where it doesn't appear as egregious. It doesn't appear as bad. It doesn't appear as immoral and unethical. Because you go, us? No, we're not controlling all these places all around the world. Sure, we're allies with the government, but what do you mean? We believe in freedom and democracy, and that's why we're supporting these authoritarian fascist leaders all over the place. See, they don't say that second part. But the idea is, yeah, we'll just call you a democratic country, even if you're not, as long as you're an ally of ours and you're, you know, our corrupt puppet who lets us jack the resources and, and control the region, as long as you let that happen, we'll call you a democracy and we'll say you're on, on, on the good guy team. So that was the evolution of empire building. It used to be, no, we're just going to invade you and take you over. and You're going to have to look at, you know, my fat face every day and it's going to be, doesn't matter, oh, you're a different religion, you're a different race, irrelevant. I run this now. Then it evolved to, oh, no, no, we don't do that. See, we're more sophisticated about it. We prop up puppet allies who are corrupt, who will do our bidding and run the country, but it's really us running it, even though this is the face of, the face of who runs it is from the country, which makes it, you know, the population is pacified easier that way. Well, now, and this is really fascinating, China has taken it the next step. So what do I mean by that? This is the next step in, in empire building. It's not just, oh, we'll put in a puppet, you know, who, who does our bidding and uh, we control the country even though we're not physically there. What they're doing is they're offering legit economic development, infrastructure development, and in return, you know, it's basically empire through debt. So it's like, we're going to do all these things for you and they're going to be real things. It's going to, you know, it's going to be uh, economic development, infrastructure development. It's gonna, your country is going to look massively modernized. And in return for this, they're basically getting like allegiance, economic allegiance, if you will. And it's, it's control through debt. And it's, uh, it's kind of a brilliant evolution, a brilliant strategy in the same way that for empire building that the U.S. did, we were the next logical step, the evolution where it was puppet dictators who are under our thumb as opposed to us just physically being there. That was a brilliant evolution, and this is the next step. And so at this point, I mean, this is just like so above and beyond what the U.S. is doing. Now, let, let me be clear across the board here. Empire is bad. <laughs> Empire is a bad thing. Being a superpower is not a good thing. Subjugation, taking away human rights, exploitation, jacking resources, all these things are bad, negative, and shouldn't be done. But what we're seeing right now is, without question, the rapid decline of the U.S. empire and the, you know, a Chinese empire kind of taking its place. And so we go to Iraq. We illegally and offensively invade the country, kill minimum hundreds of thousands of civilians, waste $7 trillion, uh, really have not much to show for it. And then what happens after all that? China just gets to swoop in and say, oh, we're going to be your ally, and we're going to help you build infrastructure and do economic development, and then we're going to have a brilliant uh, partnership. So we 
have been too heavy-handed. We have been terrible at managing the empire. And it's the inevitable rise and fall. I mean, it always happens. It'll happen in China at some point, too. Um, but I, And the timelines, I don't know, and nobody knows. And if they tell you, they know they're lying. But it is crystal clear that we are you know, an empire in rapid decline. And there, again, there are upsides of that. But just know that there's a, a sea change happening, and, and the global world order, if you will, is uh, in a realignment. And it can get very, very, very ugly before it ever gets better. Okay. All right, we're done, baby. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. I love you all very much. And, uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Uh, should be Kyle and Corin this week. Should be a show Thursday, all that fun stuff. Anyway, love you guys. I'm out. Peace.